Hello and welcome to Relationship Talk, the podcast hosted by Teresha Young, Relationship Master Coach. Now, each episode, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you find a deeper understanding of yourself, to set yourself up for dating, relationship, self-love and self-empowerment success. So enjoy, take notes and get ready to apply all key messages you learn today. Hello and welcome to Real Relationship Talk, the podcast hosted by yours truly, Teresha Young, Relationship Master Coach, where we have open, non-judgmental, heart-to-heart conversations about love, self-love, self-care, dating and relationships. And for this week's episode, I am being joined by the wonderful Dr. Sarah Shevitz, who, firstly, I want to say welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having a conversation. For those of you who don't know who Dr. Sarah is, I'm going to read a bit about her so that you do get to understand. So Dr. Sarah is a licensed psychologist specializing in love and relationships. She is the founder of the successful online psychology practice Couples Learn, which was named by Forbes Health as one of the top three online marriage counselling services in 2023. Dr. Sarah has been working with couples and individuals to improve their love lives for over 15 years. She specialises in healing attachment trauma, understanding the impact of childhood wounds on your relationships, helping couples transform their communication and rebuilding trust after betrayal. Dr. Sarah and Couples Learn have been featured on CNN, The Washington Post, Women's Health, Barbara TV and health.co. Wow, what an incredible amount of achievements there, Sarah. Aww, Absolutely amazing. I would love for you to share with us some of the key moments and highlights that led you to doing all that you do now. Um, it's so much easier to tell that in retrospect, right? I think at the time I just went to college, had to choose a major, took some psychology classes, thought this is really cool. And then continued on to grad school and became a psychologist. In retrospect, I realized because of how I grew up, I was really attracted to problem solving and managing conflict. Um, I grew up in a really high conflict home where very often it felt out of control. Nervous systems were not regulated. And it was um, obviously very stressful for a kid to grow up in that environment. So now in retrospect, especially as I've learned so much about your unconscious mind and how it impacts everything, I think I was really attracted to learning how not to recreate that in my own life. And here I am helping other people do the same. (laughs) Wow, that is incredible. It's that insight that you get from your own personal experiences. Exactly the same for me. It was my lived experiences that moved me into doing what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And childhood pain, trauma as well, that in retrospect, I look back and think, aha okay that has been one of the the guiding symbols for me in order to to move forward so in retrospect then looking back on that journey and the the high conflict situation that you were in did you have to do any forgiveness work healing work yourself oh yeah yeah I think especially um in our field if you haven't done your own work, you're not going to be a competent coach or therapist. And you can only take people as far as you've gone yourself. So I, you know, 
I did it for my own personal benefit for sure. But also then the great side effect I noticed was I'm such a better therapist because I've done my own work. So yeah, I've done a lot of that kind of insight-based therapy as well as more body-based therapy like EMDR, which is a really great um, form, a really great form of therapy that helps you heal attachment trauma from your past and have healthier relationships. So I'm trained in that as well. And I love being able to tell my clients, look, like I've been on that side of the couch. I know what it's like, and I promise it is transformational. Yeah. So you can see that there is challenges, but there's a possibility to overcome the the hurdles and the challenges from that. And my understanding is that you also specialize in, is it Omega therapy? Yeah, it's pronounced Imago. It's spelled I-M-A-G-O for anyone who wants to Google it. And it's kind of in that same vein of how your childhood impacts your relationship. And that has just been such a resonant um, topic for me and resonant experience for me that I'm really drawn to that modality, which helps helps couples look at what childhood wounding is at play when you're picking your partner and then what childhood wounding is at play when you're arguing with your partner. Oh, wow. So it all keeps stemming back to the childhood element of it. I would yeah. imagine that because of, of what we experienced, those formative years of naught to seven is so powerful, isn't it, in terms of mm-hmm. what we then absorb and take into our growing life as well. Mm-hmm. So talking about the, was it the Omega, how do you say it again? It's the Imago. Imago, Imago therapy. Okay. So how does that differ from any other sort of couples therapy that you do? I love it because I feel like it's such a nice blend of so many different types of therapy and it kind of encompasses the um, pragmatic in that it gives you structure and exercises and ways to help a couple learn how to communicate in a very structured, slow, safe way. But it also helps you look at the past. It helps you look at the future and what you want your partner to change in the future. It kind of like, for me, it is just the best of everything. Yeah, that sounds so powerful. Are there any key themes or challenges that you experience from working with your couples that there seems to be a common theme when it comes to childhood wounds and traumas? Yeah, one thing I see is that a lot of Um, people who end up together have the same wound and exact opposite iterations of it or exact opposite defense mechanisms that they built up against it. So one person or both people in the relationship might have a wound that I'm not good enough. And one person might have um, developed a really kind of bravado, ego-based personality where Mm -hmm. they might be really defensive, they might be really attacking, they might be really assertive. And then the other who has the same wound might have a completely opposite um, defense wall built up where they're quiet and passive and don't really step into greatness because they feel like they don't deserve it. And yeah, so the really, you know, kind of aggressive or assertive person, depending on how it plays out is just trying to project out that feeling of unworthiness and feeling of shame. And the other one is really taking it in and turning it inward and, and trying not to impose on anyone. And you see that those types of couples come together quite often where there's the same wound, different iterations, and they just kind of fit together like puzzle pieces, but it causes a lot of conflict as well. 
yeah, I can imagine that. And when they discover that it's the mm-hmm. same mood, does that bring them closer together? Because now there's that commonality to say it might look like a different iteration. However, mm-hmm. it stems from the same place. Have you found that it bonds them more once they have that insight? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, walking through an Imago dialogue process where you uncover something like that with your partner gives you so much more empathy for their experience. And then usually it makes you more likely to tread lightly around that wound or think twice before launching into that attack, you know, because you understand why they're doing what they're doing and where it's coming from. So something that's coming to me when you're speaking there is almost like a mirror. It's like because you are having the same similar wound, it's almost like a reflection of you, but it might look a bit different, like a distortion. Um, However, the wound is the same. So it's almost like a reflection there. Mm -hmm. So if something such as I'm not good enough, I would imagine that that's being stemmed from a childhood wound. Mm -hmm. Wow. So you do the, the healing attachment trauma as well as part of what you do. So, what are some of the, I guess, like the common attachment traumas that you are coming across? Oh, there's so many different iterations. Um, you might, so there's two types of trauma. There's big T trauma and little T trauma. And big T trauma is more traditionally what people think of when they think of traumatic experiences like war or assault or a really bad car accident or something like that, where it's like a one-time thing where your life might've been at risk and then you feel traumatized. Yeah. Um, But then there's little T traumas that can be little, almost like little paper cuts that over time, you know, you might've heard the saying like death by paper cuts over time, they turn into really problematic um, experiences for people. So those might be things like a parent invalidating your experience. When you say, I'm sad, you're not sad, stop crying. There's nothing to be sad about right? Something so simple that so many parents do. Yeah. Or, or there might be a lack of something. If you can't think of any trauma, but you have a lot of trauma-like responses, maybe your trauma was that you were missing connection. You were missing affection. You were just, there just wasn't the things that you needed to develop healthy attachment just weren't there. And maybe it wasn't that they were abusive or completely invalidating, but they also didn't hold space for your emotions and teach you how to deal with them or sit and connect with you in any way. So those are all small T traumas. Mm. So in the line of work that you do, how long would you say it takes for a couple to actually work through therapy and to heal? Because it feels like it's a journey. If you're talking about years or perhaps mini traumas and and wounds, it feels like an ongoing process when it comes to the therapy. Would I get that right? Yeah, absolutely. And everyone is so different in terms of their own individual insight and what individual work they've done that um, there's not really an average when it comes to couples Mm. work because you might have two individuals who have no understanding of how they're past is impacting their current behavior. Um, Maybe one has an active addiction and you're just kind of like trying to um, triage what's happening, or there's been a recent betrayal Mm -hmm. and you have to get through all that before you can even get into some of the childhood wounding stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you might have couples who are totally aware of it and just not 
talking about it in the way they need to and understanding each other in the way they need to. And that might be much quicker. Yeah. So communication is so powerful when it comes to rebuilding that trust as well, particularly if there has been an element of betrayal there. So for the couples that you're working with, would you say that there are some major betrayals such as um, infidelity, I would imagine, would be one of the biggest maybe Mm-hmm. betrayals financial betrayal what are some of the betrayals that you are coming across that seem to be quite common uh everything you just listed yeah definitely. okay yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I think one thing that's overlooked is the little betrayals about portraying yourself a certain way in the beginning and then um actually being really different uh a year in or two years in or saying I love surfing to get your partner to like you. And then turns out you don't even surf, you know, little things like that. Or um, I think everyone might make themselves look a little better on dates, but um, I think that's kind of an overlooked betrayal when you think you're signing up for one type of relationship with one type of person and then realize that was kind of a facade. So when you were speaking there, Sarah, I was thinking, could things like social media and dating Mm -hmm. apps and all of those new platforms be impacting on some of those micro betrayals, for example, because there's a lot of pressure on those platforms to show up maybe differently or to show up to impress on those platforms. And are you finding that some of the couples that you work with have met themselves initially through social media and, and dating apps, and this is now leading to some therapy? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or you're not posting your partner on social media and they're starting to wonder why and um, feeling insecure. Like, what are you hiding? Why are you hiding me? I mean, yeah. the number of times social media comes up in couple sessions is, well, probably not surprising to anyone because it comes up a lot. Um, or like, why did you comment on that person's post? And why did you send a heart emoji? You know, like, <laughs> what does this yeah. mean? <laughs> Why have yeah. I not received a heart emoji on WhatsApp? Yeah, why aren't you hearting my stories? <laughs> I feel betrayed and abandoned yeah. by you. Yeah. Completely yeah. get that because I'm finding that also in my practice too, that social media mm-hmm. is playing a huge part on people's level of trust as well mm-hmm. um, when it comes to the engagement on it. And it's just having that healthy communication and setting those boundaries. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine in the work that you do, that once you have identified that there is an issue to work on that cementing some healthy boundaries is absolutely key for that are there any small steps that you could give any tips and advice on in how to set healthy boundaries well there's kind of different categories of boundaries that are helpful to think about um you want to think about what are your physical boundaries as far as when you invite in physical touch and how you consent to that as well as what kind of physical touch is okay for your partner and you to have with outside people. Okay. Um, you might want to think of emotional boundaries and what emotion, what are your boundaries with how you express your emotions to each other? And what are your boundaries with how much you express emotions and in what way with others who are potentially someone you could be attracted to, you know? Um, cause that's very often how affairs start is mm. 
sharing emotionally with someone who you're, maybe you're not even attracted to them, but they are somehow a potential partner. And before you know it, you've shared all these intimate things, maybe about your relationship or maybe about you. And there are things you may not be sharing with your partner and you're creating this sense of intimacy with someone else that then can lead to feeling more connected to them and shutting your partner out further. So talking about like, what are those emotional boundaries and do we need to have physical boundaries to prevent that from happening? Like not going out to one-on-one lunches with a coworker who is a potential partner, you know? Um, or, and when I say potential partner, like I'm, I'm intentionally not saying someone of the opposite sex or someone of the sex you're attracted to, but that's kind of what I mean is like someone that, you know, you could in the future date if the circumstances were different. Mm. Um, so, you know, talking about emotional boundaries, physical boundaries, any social media boundaries for sure. Yeah. Um, intellectual boundaries, what you do and don't share with people about ideas or what ideas do and don't you talk about with each other. So you kind of want to like think about all those categories for yourself and for your relationship. Mm. It creates that element of safety, isn't it? Which mm. is so important when it comes to deeply connecting with somebody in a relationship. It's one of our basic needs, you know, safety, security, stability, is to have that all in place. So when it comes to setting boundaries, I know that some people have hesitations as to how soon do you communicate your boundaries? Because mm-hmm. I do believe that there is a difference between a boundary and a barrier. Mm-hmm. And the barriers can be quite hard fenced. It's like there's no movement. It's rigid. Nothing is going to happen. Whereas a boundary mm-hmm. could actually change over time because mm-hmm. we grow as people mm-hmm. and our preferences change and things change. So how soon would you recommend that people, let's say you just started dating, for example, Sarah, how soon do you communicate your boundaries? Because some people are like, it's a bit scary. I don't want to scare them off and I don't want to chase them away. How soon is too soon to communicate a boundary? I think you do want to scare them off. This is kind of what I was talking about earlier with the betrayal about pretending you're one way and then turning into some other person entirely you don't want someone to be attracted to you or a version of you that's not really you. So scare the ones off that are not attracted to you or don't want to respect your boundaries or don't want the same type of relationship that you're looking for. Like that, that should be communicated as soon as it makes sense to bring it up in a conversation or if it comes up organically or whatever. But I definitely do not recommend waiting longer than seems if it comes up organically, great. Don't hold back, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And if someone's crossing a boundary, let them know, Hey, this is a boundary I have. What do you think about that? Does that feel like something you're cool with respecting? Or does that really not feel like a good fit for you? And if it's not a good fit for them, it's also not a good fit for you. No matter how many other great qualities they might have. That can be so daunting for so many people because yeah. it's almost like that fear of, I'm not going to meet another person like this person, for example. And you start to mm-hmm. romanticize life with this person and you think, oh, there's a sticking point. I'm going to have to communicate a boundary. I might scare them off. However, exactly what you said there, you want to filter, filter, filter. <laughs> like, you know, you really want to get to the root cause of somebody who is the mm-hmm. right fit for you in that relationship dynamic. Yeah. So you've spoken about communication as well. 
And I know that perhaps like the love languages can be so powerful. Do you use the five languages as part of your practice or do you use something else? Um, you know, I talk about it in the beginning, just kind of getting an understanding of what each of their love languages are and how that might play out between them. But that's pretty much the extent of it. It's not like a huge part of my practice. Um, it's just kind of a fun thing for couples to know about each other if they don't already know. Yeah. And, um, one thing I do I actually have a free download for this on my website is help couples create a caring list where they, um, write a list of like 10 or 15 things that, might make them feel loved and cared for if their partner did it. And so very often the conversation about love languages comes up there because mm -hmm. a lot of your items will be related to your love language. If you're a physical touch person, you might be saying like, give me a hug, give me a kiss, give me a massage. Mm -hmm. Acts of service might be saying, take out the trash and do the dishes and take my car to get washed. And that I'm going to feel really loved if you do those things. Yeah. So that's kind of how it comes up in my practice. Okay. Yeah. So with the couples that you're you're speaking to and, and they're here, they're working with you, are you finding that there is a degree of codependency that is existing in the people that you speak to because of these attachment issues that they may have? Sometimes, yeah. That's definitely um something I see quite a bit in my practice. Mm -hmm. And an area of expertise for me is that kind of narcissistic codependent um co-creation of to a toxic relationship that comes up. Mm -hmm. And uh it's interesting because the the folks on the more codependent side of that spectrum, and by the way, it's a spectrum with um, codependence on one side and narcissists on the other. And the wound, like I said earlier, is I'm not good enough for both of them. And yeah. the iterations are completely different. Um, the narcissistic individual or someone who's like more on that side of the spectrum, not necessarily diagnosable, mm -hmm. um, focus avoids feeling that inadequacy of I'm not good enough by projecting outward and maybe being hostile or having bravado and seeming larger than life when in reality inside they feel really crummy yeah and then we've got the codependent who's got that same wound and their iteration is I'm going to prove I'm good enough by mm -hmm. tolerating all kinds of stuff that most people wouldn't tolerate um being really extra empathetic and doing all the things for you. Um, and really that's also a way to avoid looking within and realizing there's this sense of I'm not good enough. It's like performing over and over again so that you can feel good enough and both need to do self-love work to heal. Yeah. And it's interesting what you say there about the two spectrums, like the, the polar opposite almost. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there. So if you are dealing with a couple who are polar opposites, mm -hmm. there's a way for them to, to come together because you hear a lot about narcissistic traits and how it's not possible for them to change and you know, no amount of work is going to change the narcissist. Um, but I would love to hear from your perspective what you experience from that. Well, there's a difference between someone that has narcissistic traits and someone that has narcissistic personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And even with narcissistic personality disorder, there's a spectrum of, you know, someone who sure they meet diagnostic criteria, but they are motivated to change. And it's, it's their, def their disorder is a defense mechanism against the trauma they experienced in childhood. Um, and that is almost always true, by the way, for people with narcissistic personality disorder, it's, 
instead of just having a defense mechanism, their whole personality is the defense mechanism. And that's kind of the difference between someone with traits and the disorder is like the traits might be experiencing a lot of defense mechanisms, kind of projecting them outwards. The disorder is the defense mechanism. Okay. But that said, a lot of times in those opposites attract relationships, if both partners, and it's someone who's not like a super malignant, really, you know, overt narcissist, maybe it's someone with traits and someone who's got codependent traits, if they both do their own individual healing work, yeah, they can move more towards the center of that spectrum Mm -hmm. and have a healthy relationship where, yes, this person gives a little more and yes, this person takes a little more, but you kind of always have something like that in relationship. It's in some way, someone, you know, it's pretty rare that we're a zero. If this is like a zero to five type spectrum, most people are probably like a one or a two on either end. They're not necessarily at the zero end of middle of the spectrum. So I realize I'm showing this visually with my hands and a lot of people aren't going to see this. So it might not make sense when you're listening. Like, you might want to run over to YouTube to see this yeah. if you're listening to it on a sound audio platform. I'm basically drawing a line with my hands and showing their opposite ends of the spectrum. And then there's a middle that's zero. And so you've got like zero to positive five is the codependent side of the spectrum and zero to negative five is the narcissistic side of the spectrum. And this is all, by the way, from a book um, called The Narcissistic Codependent Trap, which is a really good book to read if you're, or no, The Human Magnet Syndrome, The Narcissistic Codependent Trap. And it's a really good book to read if you're in one of those dynamics. Because that can seem like really daunting. I love the way how you illustrate that as well in terms of how Mm -hmm. they are, but how they can come together at some point. And the healing work is going to look so different for each person. Is there a first step for people who are listening to this thinking, oh, that kind of resonates with me. I could have those codependent tendency. What is one of the first steps that they could do in order to get onto that healing journey? I would start reading um, some books on the topic. Some ones that I like are uh, for some codependent women, they can resonate with women who love too much. Um, Another, I think it's by Robin Clark, if I remember correctly. And another book is that one I already recommended, The Human Magnet Syndrome. Um, There are a lot of great books out there that just kind of help you learn more about yourself and why you do the things you do. And that gives you a place to start when you're looking for a therapist as well. If you, cause that would be the next step in my mind, or even at the same time is get a therapist or a coach who's trained in, um, doing that trauma healing work. And you got, you've got so much more material to work with when you're doing the reading outside and then bringing that inside into therapy. So that's why I say start there or listen to podcasts or things like that, that you Mm -hmm. start to realize, oh, that's why I do what I do. Yeah. It's starting Mm -hmm. to make sense. So that's Mm -hmm. great. Mindset wise, you spoke at the start of our conversation about body work as well. Mm -hmm. So is there anything that people could do in relation to their body, um, self-care, self-love that could also help them along that healing journey? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots of somatic practices out there. Um, Instagram and TikTok are actually great places to learn these <laughs> for healing your nervous system or regulating your nervous system, I should say. Um, so if you just look up 
Google nervous system regulation techniques, you can find a ton, but um, deep breathing is a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, grounding using your five senses where you kind of like engage your sight, your sound, your hearing, your taste, your touch, your, um, I'm losing what, oh, smell. Um, so kind of looking around the room, if you're feeling in a triggered state and saying, okay, what do I see around me? You know, I see a plant or, what do I smell? I smell flowers or I can mm. touch, like if you have something cozy, like my sweater, touch yeah. that and kind of feel what it feels like in your hands. Mm. Um, those are called grounding techniques. And those can help, especially if you are prone to dissociating when you're traumatized, which is kind of like floating outside of your body almost, or leaving, leaving the emotional experience and feeling really disconnected from what you're doing. Um, so it just kind of depends what you're in if you're in a fight response in the Mm -hmm. moment doing something physical can help like going for a walk or going for a run to kind of help expel some of that energy or maybe pushing against a wall and saying no really forcefully um so there's there's a million different ways to regulate your nervous system and depending on what is happening in your nervous system different techniques will work better for different people and that does require an element of slowing down in this fast-paced world, which is could be one of the causes for many types of conflict as well, because we're constantly on the go. The mind's on the go. It's fast, 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 racing, racing, racing. Mm-hmm. But in actual fact, there's a lot of power in slowing down mm-hmm. and just doing some of those grounding techniques. You're so right. I mean, we are very often in a fight, flight, freeze response throughout our day because we're stressed about work emails or a deadline or traffic or a fight with a partner Mm. and your body is responding like you are in actual physical danger, which is what your fight, flight, freeze response is for. It thinks a tiger is attacking me when really you just got an email you didn't like (laughs) and it's really overreacting (laughs) by thinking a tiger is attacking me. So to regulate your nervous system is to communicate with that unconscious kind of body part of you that says a tiger is here and you can say no no there's no tiger we're good yeah. yeah and to slow down and to like really ground yourself I knew somebody who in the moment of anxiety used to just hold on to something solid it could be uh-huh. a table it could be a piece of furniture but that was the way of them grounding themselves in that moment and just feeling stable I think mm-hmm. in that element of not feeling very secure, it's like, I need to grab something. I'm like literally holding my coffee table right now. That's why I'm coming forward into the camera. Um, but yeah, just to get that grounding there. So it's finding what works for you. For mm-hmm. me, for example, I love walking in nature. Like okay, I absolutely love it. Yeah, it's so magical. And actually experiencing it, like experiencing the walk. Yes. Looking, smelling just really being present and I also practice my gratitude at the same time whilst I'm doing it so mm. I call it a gratitude walk and I'll be looking at everything that I'm so grateful for on this walk and being present there's just so much power behind doing such things like that mm-hmm. absolutely and talking about present actually being present in the relationship with somebody um I'm not sure if you experienced that, but I know when I'm doing my my coaching as well, a lot of the the issues are that you're just not present enough. You're not showing up enough for me. 
Yes. So um, doctors John and Julie Gottman are kind of the leaders in the field of research on what makes relationships work and what causes them to fail. Yeah. They have a million great books out there and they're just the cutest couple and they've done so much great work in this field. And they call what you're talking about, this kind of being present, um, attending to our partner's bids for connection. And when your partner makes a bid, whether it's saying something like, oh, I read this really interesting article today. Obviously, you're trying to connect. You're trying to have a conversation. Or maybe they make a bid that says, can I have a hug or can I have a kiss? Or maybe they just look sad. That's also a bid sometimes. And what the Gottmans found is that the masters of relationships that they've studied, they turn towards about 75% of those bids, meaning they respond positively. So they give the hug. They ask, what's going on? You look sad. They start the conversation asking about the article. Mm -hmm. And the people who are not as successful in relationships are missing a lot of those bids or turning away from them where they just ignore them or even turning against the bid where they get angry at their partner for having the need or making the bid. So it's like, no, I'm not going to give you a hug. I'm doing the dishes right now. What are you crazy? Like, no, I'm in the middle of something or honey, that's great. I don't really care about this article right now. I'm trying to feed the kids dinner or, you know, something like really kind of attacking them for even making the bed in the first place. Mm. So that presence is something that has come through over and over again in research. It's turning towards bids. It's noticing when you're trying to connect with your partner. And even if they're not making a bid, just turning towards and being present is so important, not constantly being on your phone or constantly, you know, working or being spaced out. That connection helps us feel safe. And when we can sit down you know, as a couple and just have a conversation, a real healthy, transparent, empathetic conversation about what's working well and what's not working well as well. And really addressing those things, because we sometimes don't even take the time to really talk about the state of the relationship, the state of the yeah. union, whatever you want to call yeah. it, is <laughs> to actually sit down and make time to have that analysis to have that assessment now how are we doing as a couple and what are your thoughts Uh, on that well I think that's why a lot of people seek couples coaching or therapy right is to have somebody hold that space for them and help navigate that conversation until they get the tools to do it on their own and then you're 100% right. That's an important weekly check-in yeah. um, to talk about what's going in, what's going on in our relationship. Mm. How have you felt with me this week? Um, have I hurt you in any way that I didn't mm. realize, or maybe I did realize and we should talk about it and I should apologize. Yeah, there's, there's a, a lot. Huge vulnerability piece around that too, isn't there, though, Sarah? Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. really allowing yourself to be vulnerable, to receiving that information because often if you're thinking, oh, what are they going to say? There's an element of, okay, but if you have that building block of trust and safety and you can articulate it in the way that's going to come across as being compassionate, empathetic, then having that state of the union check in once a week, it shouldn't feel like a chore. It shouldn't feel like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? What have I done wrong? Or yeah. how am, not, am I not good enough this time? It's just having that check-in. I think it's so important that couples do it. 
and mm-hmm. you know, spend that time, even if you have to put it into your diary uh, mm-hmm. and just say, this is non-negotiable. This is us. Like we have to start making love and our relationship a priority because it can sometimes be there and you can be in love with somebody, but you might not love the life that you have with that person. So there's a difference. And it's having that conversation, I would say, with, with your partner to say, mm-hmm. what's working, what's not working. So I love that share. I absolutely love that share. So I'm curious, Sarah, just on your your own experience, if you are open to sharing, in terms of some of your romantic experiences, past and current, what have been some of your key learnings and lessons from those experiences? So, you know, we talked earlier about my healing journey and kind of doing my own work and a large part of what prompted me to do that work was that I kept attracting, attracting the same type of relationship over and over again. And it probably wasn't until I was like mid twenties that I started to realize I was the common denominator (laughs) and that there was this pattern. I know it was really, it was so interesting. I can remember this time in my car sitting there going, wait, I think there's a pattern here. I think I might be doing something like missing something or I don't know what I'm doing to attract. Actually at that time I thought to um, make people not interested in me after a while. And so I was like, okay, I must not be good enough at that. People are leaving after a certain amount of time. Right. And what I realized is actually what I talked about earlier that I wasn't showing up authentically. And then the more comfortable I got, the more authentically I was showing up and rightfully so these guys were like, this isn't, you know, they didn't say this out loud, but they're like, this isn't the relationship I signed up for. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This isn't the person I thought you were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I realized I have to get more confident showing up as my authentic self and accepting myself first and then bringing her in all her, you know, strengths and growth areas to the table and being like, this is it, <laughs> they, you know, take it or leave it. Um, so that was kind of stage one of my growth. Yeah. And then stage two was really doing some of the EMDR reprocessing around past events from my family growing up that have contributed to me, had contributed to me not feeling good enough or not showing up in the way I could have. Um, and also not noticing who was a bad match for me and who was going to be an unhealthy partner. So that was kind of layer two of my growth is attracting, well, being attracted to healthier partners. Mm. And that's healing your attachment style, by the way. Like when you are attracted to people who are not healthy for you or not healthy partners in general, you usually have some sort of insecure attachment style and doing that deeper attachment trauma healing work helps you be attracted to a more secure relationship, which sometimes feels a little boring (laughs) and, you know, just doesn't have the same butterflies and stuff, but it's the way that you want to be in relationship. Yeah. And it's going to feel completely foreign, that Mm -hmm. type of new person, because it's not what you're used to attracting. Mm -hmm. And actually, when you scale back there, Sarah, and you thought, okay, I'm not showing up as my authentic self and the work that I needed to do, was it important for you to do that work that in the work before you got into a relationship did you do that solo or is it possible to still do the work 
and be with somebody at the same time. Both are possible. Yeah. Um, being in a relationship will challenge you in ways that being single won't Yeah, and vice versa. Um, but it's, you're much more triggered in relationship, especially the deeper and more serious and more connected and more vulnerable a relationship becomes the more triggered you're going to be. So huge, huge growth can happen in a relationship. Now you may outgrow that relationship as a result because you attracted it from a place that was less healed or less authentically you. Yeah. Um, but that's a blessing in disguise if that happens, even though you might be sad about the breakup. Mm. So what did you the authentic, together. you may, exactly, you may grow together. You can you know, grow together, grow apart, but there's going to be some growth, isn't there, along the way. And if you yeah. can see that as a lesson or a learning from that, then that's a fantastic place to be. It might be painful at the time because heartbreak, you know, heartbreak is heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you're going through a silent divorce, for example, that can be quite heartbreaking too. When you're still together, but you're growing apart and you just cannot really understand what's happened. That can be painful in itself. Yeah. So what did the authentic Sarah look like when you when you found that person? Uh, I've just found my voice. I was able to speak up more about, for instance, like boundaries or things that I wanted or um, preferences I had. Yeah. Yeah. And communicate that well. And was that just in a romantic relationship or was that across the board where you find in? Across the board. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think I would have the business I have today or the um, relationship I have today or the friendships I have today if I didn't find that voice and, and I had to let go of some friendships that, you know, were not aligned with who I was becoming and were more aligned with the kind of passive, I wasn't fully passive, but I wasn't fully vulnerable. And that was the thing, like when you're not comfortable being vulnerable or emotionally available, you're going to attract emotionally unavailable partners and friends. Mm, Yeah, I totally get that. Yeah. So equally, did you come across any situations where people were seeing that you were changing? And I know you said about you like letting go of these people, but were there any people who were saying to you, you're not the same person anymore? Um, yeah, I think the, you know, some of the friendships that I let go of, it was a very mutual experience mm-hmm. of this isn't really a good fit anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's been able to... Be comfortable with that. I would say, you know, to be comfortable with the release of that and work through that because there's probably a grief process and cycle that you're going to go through when it comes to so many endings in our life as well. And yeah. even the ending of a of a friendship can still be quite triggering, and we can go through that grief cycle um, that we do experience. So, in terms of we spoken about the the self-care that you do you've done the the therapy work yourself as well we've spoken about some of the walks you enjoy doing walk in nature as well how else do you like stimulate your mind too is it through reading I do love reading I have kind of two ways I read with um, educational stuff I do audio and I like to listen if I'm hiking or walking my dog or something like that I might listen to a book on personal growth. And then my fun reading is just like at night before I go to sleep, kind of reading a few pages in a fun book, more like sci-fi fantasy type Mm. stuff, just totally, you know, not related to reality at all. (laughs) Um, 
And so, yeah, I love reading. That's a, a very regulating at the end of the night, that's a very regulating experience for me. Mm. Um, definitely physical affection is a very regulating experience for my nervous system, though it wasn't always. I used to be like kind of turned off by a lot of physical infection, affection, but as I grew into a healthier kind of more regulated nervous system, I realized how much hugging or snuggling or cuddling with a pet, you know, or a partner, it's just really regulating for me. So mm. I fit lots of that into my day, morning and night. Oh, um, this sounds so delicious. I've got a six-year-old daughter and just receiving her hugs, it's just yeah. so, it is so regulating. It really it is. is. Like, even if it feels like she's squeezing me to death, I don't care. Like <laughs> I will receive that hug with open arms. And yeah. it's really fine. And I think it's one of the, like, the big words that you've used during this um, conversation is regulation really and if you can find ways to regulate yourself then that sets the tone for the relationships that you have with other people because I firmly yeah. believe that the relationship you have with yourself just set the tone for the relationships that you have with other people 100%. it starts mm-hmm. with us and sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow because you think me like Hang on, I'm the common denominator here. <laughs> like that oh. means some self-responsibility and accountability there. Yeah. It, that can be quite challenging to think about it. But it's doing that without blame, without shame, without guilt, and just witnessing that non-judgmentally to say, okay, yeah, I acknowledge it now. So yeah. well, what am mm-hmm. I gonna do about it? <laughs> And I think that's a whole journey too, is sometimes, at least for me, there was like this realization that I'm the common denominator. And then this, like, I have to fix myself. There's something Mm. wrong with me. And then eventually it was easing into, there's nothing wrong with you. Accepting who you are and how you are is the key here. You know, like, yes, maybe you have some behaviors that need to change, but at your core, you are not broken or inadequate or yeah any of those negative things you hear that a lot though people say you know I'm a broken person you may feel you may feel like you're broken like your heart is broken for example you may actually feel that way but to say that I am broken I mean even to say the words I am you are affirming something there's so much power behind the words I am to even say that so to actually just witness it and just say okay I'm feeling a certain way it's an indication as to how I'm feeling. No, what's going on internally? Mm-hmm. Well, what can I do to move forward? Um, yeah. which or I think- do I just need to sit with it and yeah. love myself through it and yeah. not try to change it, right? Like I think in the personal growth world, we can get so focused on changing ourselves and improving mm-hmm. ourselves when much of the time the work is settling in and accepting ourselves and our whole range of feelings that come with it. Yeah. And you know, particularly for the women, what you're talking about, this actually just settling in and receiving it. Then you can talk about you know, the masculine and feminine energy that exists as well. And just allowing yourself to settle and to just be and surrender. Mm-hmm. Just let it go. Take your hands off the control and just be. That can be quite scary. <laughs> for some yeah, people. yeah. <laughs> Still working on that one over here. <laughs> I do have to remind myself feminine energy you know and just allow yourself to see take your hands to the control Teresa it's fine Mm -hmm. you don't have to micromanage everything but yeah it's just allowing ourselves to be in that in that space to just even as you said just sit with it because what you resist persists so at some point if it's not now it will probably bubble up and surface at some other point 
So, oh, I love that journey. I love how you described that. That was so amazing. Oh, so, thanks for asking. oh, you're welcome. So in terms of love then, because you've been uh, specializing in love and relationships, I am curious to know, what is your personal definition of love in the context of a romantic relationship? I, so I was just meeting with my social media manager right before you, and we go through my Instagram posts and kind of look through and, and organize them all. And the one that's fresh in my mind is love is relentless, relentless showing up over and over again. Oh. And I think that is such a nice definition of you. Love is hard. Love can be amazing and beautiful and easy and love can be triggering and exhausting and growth provoking. Um, but it's relentlessly showing up over and over again and choosing to, to show, to do the behaviors that are love. Cause it's not just a feeling, the feeling's going to go away at times in a long-term relationship. I just love to say this to people. So they know, like it is a hundred percent normal to fall out of love with your partner and fall back in love with them again in the future. So a lot of times we just think, oh, I fell out of love. This isn't the right relationship for me. And maybe that's true depending on what's going on in the relationship and in your life. But also maybe you just need to relentlessly show up like you do love this person and find the ways you love them again. Mm. So a word that you used there, I love what you said, was choice. Like you choose. Love is a choice, yeah. It is, it is a choice. I saw something on social media on Instagram recently and there was a couple talking about that and she was saying at first that was a hard swill pill for her to swallow when she heard her partner say I choose to love you she was like what do you mean you choose love is just here like how why are you choosing to love me you make it sound like mm -hmm. there's an option like there's no other option but we're always making choices aren't we life is full of choices and we choose to be in a relationship unless there's some reason where you're you're kind of forced into a relationship and obviously that's a whole different thing um, on that aspect um but naturally it, it is a choice it is a choice that we do make mm -hmm. so um but I like the way that you describe that just being relentless and mm -hmm. and, and showing up and some people might not really get that whole falling out of love and back into love because they may feel that's a, a form of betrayal you know, mm -hmm. if you if you fall out of love but then you fall back into love but to be okay with that mm -hmm. be okay yeah. with that are there any signs for example if you feel that you are falling out of love is there any signs that somebody could do to think okay I can even sit with that or you know what can I do to fall back in love like I feel it I feel like I'm falling out of love what can I now do in order to get back in love well it's a feeling you have to kind of foster um, in the beginning of a relationship, when you're in the romantic love stage, your hormones all conspire to make you feel love. Like it's yeah. easy to feel love. Your serotonin and your dopamine and all these neurotransmitters in your brain literally change when you're falling in love mm -hmm. to make you obsess over your love object and to lower your inhibitions and to just keep you in love. And then those start to normalize and equalize again. And you really have to um, again, start doing the behaviors that you did when you were falling in love. Mm. So maybe you need to get your partner gifts or, um, compliment them more or focus on the things that you love and admire and respect and appreciate about them mm. very intentionally, instead of 
what our go-to is, is focusing on the things that we want to change or that we don't like, or that annoy us. Um, So you kind of really just got to act as if. Yeah. So what could be quite a useful exercise for people putting an exercise or some sort of um, exploration to do is when you are identifying the strengths in a relationship, when you're having that state or the union conversation, document, write down the things that have been working. Because Mm -hmm. on reflection, let's say you're starting to fall out of love, you can go back and say, oh, yes, on the 9th of March 2023, we had a conversation and that was working really well. So could we maybe reintroduce that into mm-hmm. what's happening now? So, you know, it's it's information. You know, what we do with that information is powerful. So Yeah, uh, I love yeah. that idea. It's just yeah, it just came to me, Sarah. <laughs> well, this is why you're amazing. <laughs> I'm sharing it with the world first time and now I'll incorporate that into my coaching. Haha, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're getting downloads occasionally. <laughs> this is what happens when you get two brains together. Yeah, it's like <laughs> We just masterminded here, and yeah, we we're going to do it. <laughs> oh, Sarah, I'm so thank you for coming it. to our TED talk. <laughs> oh, amazing! So much nuggets have been shared here, and I know that everybody who has been listening is going to get so much value from this conversation. Mm. So I've really, really enjoyed it, and I'm just going to wrap up the conversation because we shared so much. Before I allow you to leave. I would love to know, or would you be able to share with the audience, with the listeners, at least one key takeaway that can help them along their journey of love, life and relationships? Well, I'd say related to what we just talked about. And, you know, this is such a simple thing, but write down one thing per day or say out loud to your partner, one thing per day that you love about them or appreciate about them or respect about them or admire about them. Any of those categories because then you're training your brain to look for those things and you're training your brain to stay in love. Mm, That's so, so just something that can be, seems so simple, but we can make everything seem so complex, but a simple practice like that. I did read um, recently that, and I haven't done my own research around this, so I'm just sharing what I heard, was that it can take up to 10 to 20 seconds for the brain to acknowledge something good and positive in the experience but it can take a quarter of a second to recognize the negative mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so we are wired almost just to, that negativity bias almost is just yeah. look for that negativity and it takes so much more effort to look for the positive and the good yeah because that helps us survive to look for threat to look for what needs to be optimized to look for how to survive so it makes total sense but to be in a conscious relationship you kind of have to override your instinct in a lot of ways yeah mm. what a lovely parting note to end on <laughs> <laughs> that could be the title of the podcast so so thank you so much I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation it's been moving it's been inspiring it's been touching all of that juiciness mm. if the listeners would like to reach out to you or follow you whereabouts can they find you and do you have any events coming up that they could be aware of um, I'm couples learn on everything. So Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all of that. Um, and our website is coupleslearn.com. And um, we provide therapy all over the world. So you can always connect with one of our therapists there. Um, and what's coming up to be determined, I'm working on a course, but I have no idea when I'm actually going to get it launched. So I don't, I'm not going to 
plug it now, but if you, <laughs> if you download any of the freebies or take any of the quizzes on our website, you'll get linked up in our email list and then you'll be first to know when that's ready. Oh, awesome. Sarah, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a joy. Thank you for your time in this conversation. Thank you. I'm also going, oh, you're so welcome. I'm also going to drop the links to Sarah's contacts and social media and website all in the show notes. So you'll be able to easily access that. So again, thank you very much. And for everybody who has tuned into this episode, I want to thank you for your time, for your energy and for your attention. And until the next episode, take great care of yourself and others too. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. Now, make sure to check out the show notes in the description with all the important links and how to connect with and follow Teresha directly. If you are motivated and encouraged after listening to this, please follow and subscribe to this podcast. Hey, and whilst you're there, go ahead and leave a five-star rating and add a review. We would love to hear what aha moments there were for you. And you know that saying, sharing is caring. So tell your family and friends about this podcast too. So until next time, Take great care of yourself and others too.